Ed Bricker had lived in the area for a long time when he took a job at Hanford. It was 1977, and the Hanford Nuclear Reservation had just been taken over by the U.S. Department of Energy. Hanford was in its fourth decade of producing plutonium for nuclear weapons. Bricker was still there 10 years later when the site management and operations were given to the contractor, Westinghouse Electric Corporation. During that same year, Bricker began to see and report safety deficiencies that he felt could put the workers in danger. He noticed that malfunctioning alarms had simply been turned off. This meant workers could have been exposed to levels of radiation and not been aware of it. He later saw that there were leaks in the hood of windows that were used by workers to observe plutonium processing. While looking at blueprints of the plant, he saw that several major changes to the layout of the plant had not been noted. This meant that there were no accurate maps of what areas were safe and which were dangerous. One day, when then-Governor Booth Gardner was scheduled to make a visit, Bricker noted that certain radiation warning signs had been removed. The final straw for Bricker was the day he entered the control room and found no plant operator at the controls. There was an engineer in the room, but he had not been trained in safety procedures. Bricker had been approaching his superiors with all of his concerns, with no results. He continued through the different levels of management, with little interest being shown in what he was saying. He finally went to the press and contacted members of Congress. That's when the harassment began. He was told to keep quiet or the plant would get shut down, and many good people would be out of work. For the first time during his employment at Hanford, he was getting poor work performance reviews. He was sent to a company psychologist, and management mounted a campaign to remove him from his union steward position. When some of his safety equipment was sabotaged, he made a formal complaint with the Department of Labor. They launched an investigation that concluded that retaliation action had been taken against Bricker for him making complaints. This did not end the harassment. Documents later obtained through a Freedom of Information Act request show once Bricker's superiors were aware that he was speaking with the press and the members of Congress, the vice president of Westinghouse ordered an investigation to Bricker with the goal of a timely termination of Bricker. Finally, after suffering years of abuse, Bricker quit. After that, Bricker went to the Government Accountability Office, where attorney Tom Carpenter filed a complaint with the Department of Energy on Bricker's behalf. It took a year before the investigation took place. Some of the findings of that investigation included that there was a mechanical failure at the plant, deliberate destruction or altering of documents related to dangerous conditions, and the creation of an alliance between the Department of Energy and Westinghouse to identify and discredit whistleblowers. There were memos that detailed how management was more concerned with information leaks than safety concerns. There were numerous memos regarding speculation over what Bricker might have said and to whom. His supervisors planned out what they would say in interviews. A list was made to form a strategy to take control of the story. First would be to reprimand Bricker for speaking to the press without permission. Then they would investigate to see if any documents had been leaked. They would tell the press that the allegations were about employees and they couldn't discuss personnel matters. The last item on the list was to investigate to see if Bricker's allegations were true. After the results of the investigation, Bricker filed a lawsuit in federal court against Westinghouse, the contractor he had been working for. Despite having OSHA backing up Bricker, the Department of Energy supported Westinghouse and spent $1 million of taxpayers' money to fight the charges. This was for a lawsuit in which Bricker was asking for $65,000. Lawyers for Westinghouse and the Department of Energy convinced the trial judge that since Bricker worked for a private company rather than the federal government, he could not recover damages as a whistleblower. That protection only applied to people that worked for the government. 
This began a legal battle with many twists and turns. It took years, but in the end, Bricker received $200,000. Years later, he became the president of the Grays Harbor Transit Authority Union. Welcome to Down by the River, Stories of Hanford. My name is Danny Noonan, and I'm with Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility. Each month, we bring you stories from Hanford, once a facility that produced plutonium for the United States' nuclear weapons arsenal, and now the site of the largest environmental cleanup project in the world. Ed Bricker wasn't the only Hanford whistleblower, not by a long shot. While the details might be different, the scenario is often the same. A worker with great credentials and performance histories inform their supervisors about safety risks. When they are ignored, they go to a higher authority, or the press. Then harassment begins. The official response from the contractors is that the stories are fabricated and the workers delusional. They claim that the disputes are centered in personality conflicts between workers and managers, rather than safety problems. This month, I interviewed Tom Carpenter. He was the person Bricker and several other whistleblowers have gone to when they've encountered problems at Hanford. He's the executive director of Hanford Challenge, but before that, he worked for the Government Accountability Project. I asked him to describe their mission. No, no, it's uh, I was the head of their nuclear oversight program, but um, they they look at representing whistleblowers generally, and so just contractor, federal government, they look at different agencies, um, but they don't have a, uh, a, really they're into protecting dissent. They're kind of like an ACLU for whistleblowers and expose corruption and help, you know, protect these folks from retaliation, work with Congress and the administration, you know, to develop better laws and that kind of thing. Hanford was such a big part of my work that we decided to set up an office on the West Coast. I asked Tom if Hanford was different than the other nuclear sites that the Government Accountability Office works on. Well, it is and it isn't. Um, So I started working on Hanford in 1988, and uh, it was clearly the largest um, of the sites out there. It had, you know, the biggest kind of complexity, the most complexity, the biggest site, uh, an area, uh, the most contamination. Um, when, and when I was involved, they, they had reactors still operating, um, although they were being shut down. Um, so uh, other sites, um, the, the entire complex was kind of on the downhill. Um, we had so much plutonium, which was the whole point of the nuclear weapons complex in the late 80s and early 90s that the, the issue became, what do we do with all this excess plutonium? Um, so, yeah, um, a lot of sites started turning toward cleanup. And, uh, Hanford was, was one of those sites, obviously. I asked him, how did it go from him working for the Government Accountability Office to him having his own Hanford-focused NGO? Well, um... When I moved here in 92, uh, we got deep, more deeply involved in, in Hanford. And um, uh, it just reached a point where it was taking up a lot of my time anyway. And I was interested in Hanford beyond the issue of just whistleblowers. So we started getting into you know membership on the Hanford Advisory Board and started up a concerns council to mediate workers' concerns, uh, started looking at 
but just going a little bit beyond the, the reach of, of what GAP was set up for and GAP being government accountability projects. So they were very tolerant of that. Um, but over time, um, I got weary of traveling to other sites like Los Alamos and Lawrence Livermore and, you know, uh, Oak Ridge and around the complex and um, want to, to, thought that Hanford really just deserved a special look and with our approach. So uh, in 2007, we spun off, I spun off the project office to simply focus on Hanford and called it Hanford Challenge and kept the approach of mainly working with whistleblowers and insiders uh, to, bring, to bring out transparency and, and authenticity and accountability to the site. There are several NGOs in the region that work on Hanford issues. Besides Washington PSR and Oregon PSR, there's Columbia River Keepers and Heart of America Northwest. I asked Tom what his group, Hanford Challenge, does that is different. Right, so we, uh, I'll use these words again, uh, we're very much into transparency and accountability. Um, we work a lot with whistleblowers, workers at the site. Uh, we believe strongly that, you know, Hanford has a legacy of tremendous injury to the environment and to the surrounding populations, to workers. Uh, and as the cleanup moves forward, uh, it has to do things differently. It has to protect the workers, it has to protect the environment better, um, and it has to have an, uh, a cleanup with, with integrity. Uh, that's, so that's, that's kind of what we get involved for, is we uh, are pretty familiar with the government agency uh, and other agencies, but the main agency being the Department of Energy and what they're into. Um, and it seems to me that uh, mostly they're, uh, they, they think in one-year increments, sometimes four-year increments, um, you know, they, they, want, uh, they want to clean up, but I don't think they actually get it. Um, and um, I think Hanford has kind of morphed into something other than, well, certainly not a nuclear site anymore and not even a cleanup site. I think it's morphed into a way for big contractors to move in and make money, for the communities to have jobs, for the state of Washington to have a, you know, a viable industry in Eastern Washington that, that is non-agriculture, uh, that has high paying jobs for crafts, welders, electricians, carpenters, et cetera. Um, and so billions of dollars flow into that site every year and not much real thought is given to, are we making progress? Is it safe? Those are secondary questions to uh, the fact that Hanford is, has turned into this big money-making center uh, for so many people and so many communities. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a presidential election coming up. And with cleanup at Hanford scheduled to last until 2060, not only is the next president, but at least six more presidents and as many as 12 are going to have to deal with Hanford. I asked Tom if there was much difference in the way Hanford operates when the administration changes. Well, only at the edges. Uh, fundamentally, the Department of Energy uh, is uh, not even that accountable to the federal government, as far as I can tell. Um, occasionally, another agency will come in, like the EPA, or, you know, or the state of Washington, and force them to do something, usually through lawsuits um, or threats of lawsuits. Uh, but 
You know, it's Department of Energy. I mean, it'll... It's almost like there's a flavor of the day approach that happens when the administration changes. So, uh, and it's one of the problems that Hanford faces, actually, is lack of continuity. Um, so that one administration will come in and say, we're going to do this this way. We're going to have this form of contracting or this form of project management or this form of, you know, this emphasis on this cleanup. And then three years, three or four years later, someone else will come in and say, actually, we're going to do this and do it this way. And you go back to zero and reset. Um, so that's, that's been really bothersome and I think irritating to everyone, it's in, even in the communities over there. It's like, well, we thought we were on this path. No, forget about it. It's become somewhat of a joke, right, you know, um, with the various mantras they put out, you know, done in a decade was one, and, you know, in-base, in-states cleanup, and uh, just whatever, right? It just goes on and on. And yet, we don't see any real progress. Uh, the big ticket item out there uh, is the high-level waste in the tanks. And there's other problems, obviously, that are serious, but uh, the if you don't make progress on cleaning up the waste in the tanks and that spilled into the tank farms, soils, and in the Vado zone, then you're not cleaning up Hanford. Everything else is kind of um, on the surface, not not really. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't address what Hanford really is about, and that issue, that problem, remains intractable. So no one has really made progress on that. No administration has made progress on that. In fact, we are stuck at the same place pretty much that we were 30 years ago on tank waste cleanup. And uh, yet we have spent $19 billion, according to the GAO, last summer on this one problem, the high-level waste tank issue at the Hanford site. Uh, we're poised to spend another 30 or $40 billion on the same issue, uh, but with no real hope of doing anything different and probably not resulting in any different kind of success. So, um, yeah, it's... it's uh, the administrations come and go at the federal level, but Department of Energy, it was, you know, in a way it was set forth to become unchangeable in a way because of, it was first the Atomic Energy Agency or Atomic Energy uh, Commission. And uh, it was a Cold War agency that was meant to be, uh, uh, you know, insulated from the rest of the government. It was born in secrecy. Uh, it had a culture of secrecy and enforced that. The laws help, you know, uh, that were set up by Congress uh, help maintain that. And uh, so even at its very, its very core, its legal foundation is still to be insulated. Uh, and they do things the way they want to do it. It's easy to focus on the challenges and the missed deadlines at Hanford, but that would be a disservice to what has been accomplished out there. There have been successes with cleanup. I asked Tom what the biggest success at Hanford has been. Well, the most positive change was they was Hanford went out of plutonium production business. Um, so it quit making the mess. Um, plutonium production turns out to be one of the most polluting, dangerous industrial undertakings that humans have ever. I mean, we don't even can't even fathom the effects it might have on future generations because the stuff that we've created lives so long in the environment um, that we just don't have a concept of it. Um, so that's, you know, longer than the, our race, uh, our species has been around. Um, so 
uh, and we did it, uh, we kind of overkilled, right? We made a lot more of this stuff than we needed to. We have these tremendous inventories. So um, that, that we don't know how to deal with. So that's, uh, so uh, until we really fully understand and comprehend the, the job in front of us, I'm not sure that we're gonna get much farther than we are. Um, what was your original question? <laughs> I pressed Tom to tell me some of the positive changes that have come at Hanford. Positive changes. Yeah. Well, I think some of the positive changes, uh, they've started to treat groundwater, which I think is good. So they've started applying some technologies that, uh, you know, at the rate they're going, it might take them a couple of hundred years to clean the groundwater, but maybe they can ramp that up and get better at it. Um, Obviously, the reactors have been uh, largely cocooned and taken care of, so they're not as much of a threat to the river. Um, a lot of waste has been moved away from the next to the shoreline, uh, you know, to the middle of the site, and I would consider that positive. Um, so, yeah, of course, there are some positive things that have happened, and Hanford is, is owed some due uh, for that, but. Uh, I also have to look at where are we not making the progress, and I, I remain very dissatisfied, as I think most people do. One of the whistleblowers that Tom represented was Donna Bushy. She was the manager for environmental and nuclear safety for a contractor at Hanford. Her job was to anticipate and prevent nuclear safety problems. She filed a complaint alleging that the contractor tried to remove her from her post in retaliation for pushing inconvenient safety concerns. I saw her speak to a group of students once. She said that when she called the Hanford Challenge office, her first words were, I never thought I'd be calling you. Most whistleblowers never think they're going to be a whistleblower. But when the time comes for a Hanford worker to become a whistleblower, many of them call Tom. I asked him how he built up this reputation. Well, um, simply by having networks out there. So you represent a person or a team of people and you settle their case or do good for them and most cases are resolved favorably for the worker either through settlement or through a, a, a verdict um, and people get in trouble then and ask around and well this group helped Joe and, and his team or whatever right so it uh, the phone rings and mostly it's referrals uh, sometimes people read our name in the paper in connection with some of these cases and know to call us. In one case, a, uh, uh, in the case of uh, a waste treatment plant whistleblower, Donna Bushy, uh, no, it was Walt Tamasitis, the, uh, uh, a DOE manager referred Walt to, gave him my business card and said, you need to call this guy. <laughs> so even the Department of Energy sometimes refers people our way or at least you know, people within that system. So that's mostly how people know to come to us. And one of the reasons also that they, that we, we build trust is we stay away from taking a position, you know, for or against nuclear. So we don't want to be branded as anti-nuclear. And, you know, it's no secret if you look me up uh, on Google uh, that you'll find I'm very anti-nuclear. And, uh, but that is not the, the purpose of this, this organization. We, we're not here to fight nuclear power. Um, 
we do, you know, we, we do disagree with nuclear weapons, and that is part of our, but we don't make a big deal out of that. It, and more, it's about the cleanup uh, and protecting people from, uh, so when people challenge us, they call up and say, well, are you anti-nuclear? You know, to, to the community at Hanford, that translates quickly into anti-jobs, you know, and we can say, no, check our website and, um, you know, I'll be straight with you and just say that I think it's a bad idea, but that's not what this organization's about. Uh, we're here for, uh, you know, for cleanup and for protecting workers, for protecting whistleblowers and for, uh, you know, supporting the, the sites, what the site is supposed to be there for, which is cleanup. And so uh, that's, and that's true. So it's on our website and people ask around about it. Uh, and as a result, we've, we've gotten the trust of some of the unions out there and, and many of the workers. With all those years out at Hanford, I asked Tom what the biggest victory for Hanford Challenge was. Well, you know, I think one of the bigger victories for us was um, turning the waste treatment plant around. So the waste treatment plant is the big facility that uh, is being designed and built on the site to vitrify the tank waste. Uh, and we support that concept. However, it was being built in a manner uh, that was not following nuclear safety regulations and requirements. Um, and to us, there's little point in building a cleanup facility that has the risks of exploding and creating a, a Chernobyl or Fukushima-like effect in the Northwest, um, you know, you might as well just leave it in the ground, but uh, if you're going to do that. So uh, we supported uh, a lot of the engineers and scientists who came forward, uh, including Walt Tamasitis and Donna Bushy and Gary Brunson and Don Alexander, uh, all senior level scientists and engineers uh, and who uh, had evidence, very clear evidence, of uh, flaws in the design, nuclear safety, uh, unresolved nuclear safety problems, uh, any of which could result in hydrogen gas explosions, nuclear criticalities, and the like. Uh, as usual, you know, when the allegations first surfaced, there was a solid wall of denial from both the DOE and the contractors. And the characters of these people uh, were attacked, they lost their jobs, uh, they were sidelined, they were ridiculed, and people quit talking to them in their own communities. Um, we turned that around, and through uh, publicity, through uh, congressional attention, through just perseverance on the issue in, lo in lawsuits, um, the Department of Energy now uh, cites these same deficiencies and designs to justify why there are delays. Um, they suspended all the work for design and construction in certain areas of the plant. They've kind of admitted that the one of the facilities that's one of the more dangerously designed of the facilities is probably not going to work and they're building alternatives to that. So uh, even though what we did was to delay um, uh, the opening of this plant, in, in some view, you know, some, someone could say that we're going to have hopefully a much safer plant down the road that will be more effective. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's one of our clearest and biggest victories is, you know, taking this minority view uh, on the site 
and turning it into the reality of what it is today. I think also we've made a lot of progress in um, making it safer for people to report concerns. Um, you know, we, we are there to bring lawsuits. And as a result, um, there are many occasions where workers have, you know, threatened to come to us or to file a suit and it's taken seriously. Um, and other occasions where people have, you know, uh, last summer, for instance, well, the summer before that, 2014, oh, it must have been like 18 workers went public on King 5 TV, complained about vapor exposures. And they were pretty uh, strong in their criticism. And many of them still worked at the site. Uh, and most of them, I mean, as far as I know, nobody got retaliated against for speaking out like that which was amazing to me because 10 years ago that would not have been the case. In fact, you know, we can demonstrate that it wasn't the case because all these lawsuits came out of that from 2003 and 2004 when people were doing the same thing and complaining about, uh, you know, vapor exposures and they were getting fired for it. So things have changed in, in some respects. And um, uh, I, I think that Hanford Challenge has had, you know, a, a, a positive effect on integrity and safety and well whistleblower protection and I think there are other things we've done too but but those are those are two big ones if a worker at one of the US nuclear facilities sees something wrong they should feel safe in voicing those concerns that is not just what I believe and is what the Department of Energy wants in a memo Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz sent in 2013 he wrote that the department should quote pursue a safety culture built on an environment of trust and mutual respect worker engagement, and open communication. He went on to write that the department should have an atmosphere that promotes a questioning attitude with effective resolution of reported problems. But the amount of high-profile whistleblower cases that ended in litigation has not stopped, not only at Hanford, but at other sites in the U.S. nuclear complex. Oregon Senator Ron Wyden, who is the chairman of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, is so concerned about whistleblower protection, he and several other senators, both Republican and Democrat, created a whistleblower protection caucus. Wyden said, Sunlight is a powerful disinfectant. That's been true for a long time, and there's no better proof than whistleblowers who shine a light where others have not. Sadly, Instead of being rewarded for speaking out, whistleblowers often face retaliation and serious career threats for doing what is right, what is necessary, and for exposing practices that waste tax dollars and even risk public safety. We are all better off when whistleblowers can step forward without fear. One of the major issues that the senators are concerned about is the Department of Energy's policy of paying the legal fees of contractors being sued in whistleblower cases. Senator Edward Markey of Massachusetts wrote a letter to the Energy Secretary where he wrote, Indiscriminate reimbursement wastes taxpayer money, endangers public safety, and discourages whistleblowers from coming forward to report security or safety violations or fraudulent activity. He went on to write, And by indiscriminately reimbursing their legal fees, the Department of Energy encourages contractors to engage in endless appeals, exhausting the resources of whistleblowers and potentially enabling contractors to win by default, despite engaging in illegal conduct. Senator Wyden is so concerned about the dangers that Hanford poses to the Columbia and the role that whistleblowers play in cleanup, he organized a hearing to the Senate Homeland Security Subcommittee that featured two Hanford whistleblowers. Here's an excerpt of his opening statement. 
Chair McCaskill, thank you, first of all, for doing this. This is extraordinarily important because if we're going to have the kind of safety agenda that we need in this country, we've got to get the truth out. That's the bottom line, and I'm particularly pleased that you have three individuals that I've had a chance to talk to, in the case of Mr. Carpenter, uh, for practically two decades, I, I believe now, and Dr. Tamasitis and uh, Ms. Bushy uh, as well, and getting the real story of the problems at the Department of uh, Energy's Hanford site is hugely important for our part of the world. As uh, some of you know, uh, Hanford essentially adjoins the Columbia River, which is our lifeblood for uh, quality of life and recreation and business and a whole host of, uh, of needs. And the reality is Hanford, is Hanford is a lasting and dangerous legacy of the federal government's nuclear weapons production activities, including millions of gallons of high-level radioactive waste. And for decades, uh, secrecy was a way of life at Hanford. First, because it was necessary to protect uh, nuclear weapons secrets, but later it became a way of hiding the true environmental impacts of decades of plutonium production. And what you're going to hear from these uh, three today, and hopefully a number of times in the days ahead, because working with my colleagues, and I'm glad to see uh, Senator Johnson here as well, we really need to dig in and get the truth out about the problems at the site. We're talking about uh, contamination of groundwater to safety problems at the waste treatment uh, plant. And the reality is, uh, and I say this to our chair and our colleague, Senator Johnson, the only way these serious matters have become public knowledge is because courageous, committed employees like these two individuals have come forward to tell us and to tell uh, the American people. And I'll close up uh, uh, Senator McCaskill with just two last points. First, independent reviews essentially corroborate their point of view. Uh, both uh, the Defense Nuclear F Facility Safety Board and the department's own safety inspectors found that Hanford has maintained a culture that at best has thwarted uh, the ability of employees to come forward and at worst has threatened their careers and livelihood. And the fact that with respect to Dr. Tamasitis and Ms. Bushy that they were fired after this issue has gotten so much attention by uh, the independent observers, by you uh, as our chair, uh, Senator McCaskill, and myself when I was chair of the Energy Committee, in my view, underscores the fact that nothing has really changed at Hanford. And that's what we've got to turn around. And that has been another episode of Down by the River, Stories of Hanford. I want to thank Tom Carpenter for sitting down for an interview. You can learn more about his organization at HanfordChallenge.org. If you want to hear other episodes of this podcast, you can visit WPSR.org and click on the Nuclear Legacies tab. There you'll find ways to stream or download via iTunes, SoundCloud, and YouTube. This will be the last episode of Down by the River for the foreseeable future. I want to take this opportunity to thank some of the people that helped make it happen. Jay Kelly designed our logo. Rafi Gotsman wrote and recorded the theme song. And Payne Chantoon transcribed several of the interviews. I also want to give special thanks to WPSR's Executive Director, Laura Skelton. She's been very supportive of this podcast and helped with every single episode, giving notes, suggestions, and guidance. 
And a special thanks to everyone that works on Hanford issues, from unions to government agencies to public interest groups. Thank you to everyone that's working for a safe and transparent cleanup of Hanford. Thanks for listening.